marking out the end of my uh, single days. Uh, and uh, I often get teased a little bit by Brother Chuck and Gladell about uh, almost being giddy like a teenager again uh, because of the uh, wonderful person that the Lord had placed not only in my pathway but placed me in her pathway as well. And it was it was really a remarkable thing, a divine thing that God had done. Um, and we were just pursuing the path together to see exactly where this would go. And on December 16th of 2017, I married again. And uh, and I'm I'm very thankful, very thankful. We have. We have had a, a few months together, and immediately she started to get a baptism uh, into travel ministry and uh, being on planes uh, every week, uh, which uh, to some degree was a new experience for her every week, not, you know, first time. But, yeah, it's like, yeah, a couple of times it's been twice a week. Uh, but nevertheless... I want to formally introduce my wife to you, Michelle. Um, she's a minister of the gospel in her own right. Um, came from a really an outstanding local church, Faith Life Church in Branson, Missouri. I have had the privilege of meeting uh, the pastor there and uh, some of the associates as well and have found them to be honorable men of God. And I'm very grateful for the way, which the uh, really the order that God placed in her life, the way that she's been trained. She's a proper woman. That was one of the things that caught my attention right from the beginning. She wasn't one of those ladies that initiated the conversation. She just made me know that she was available. <laughs> and I, no, no, you got to hear, no, listen, 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 listen. You got to hear this right. You got to hear this right. What I'm talking about, what I'm talking about, what I'm talking about is the fact that she was a single woman and she did not pursue. I was the pursuer. Okay? <laughs> you guys just started laughing. You got to help me climb up out of this pit now. <laughs> no, really, really. Um, uh, training is excellent, and and I'm very, very, I really am very thankful for that. Um, in our traveling together, uh, she's shared uh, a couple of times the word of the Lord, and and really is, is quite powerful, quite powerful what I heard. And so I wanted to come and just introduce herself to you. There's your mic there. We have nine children together. Yeah, nine children. And now we have five grandchildren. Um, she brought in four. And uh, as of today, um, my son and my daughter, they have just received their first child. And so yes. today's a wonderful day. So we have five, five grandchildren. Uh, I mean... When they gave him his name, Paxton Alexander Everett, I'm thinking there, there are no Paxtons in our family. And uh, Alexander, I don't know of any Alexanders in our family. I know what the name means, but I said, boy, that, that sounds like a legal name in the name.
Yeah. So, so we're we're happy. We're we're delighted uh, to be here with you, Michelle. Why don't you say hello to the people? It's so good to be here. I want to tag on to that about Paxton uh, because many of you know Apostle Steve, and you probably have received him in that office. And he's a scholar of the Word. And uh, I'm an adventure chaplain. When he says, you know, the Lord joined our paths, that was literal. I was on a 100-mile hike when I met him, Mm -hmm. and the Lord literally joined our paths. Yes. And so um, when I began to receive from the Lord uh, a mission for the next 30 months, 36 months, ending in November 2020, to pray from the high point of every state, all 50 states, by election time, uh, we were discussing that, and he said, you know, I'll be your greatest supporter. I'll do anything I can to get you there, see you through, pray you through, and cover you and protect you. Um, but you notice all of those words don't say climb with you. <laughs> and um, So the Lord began to work on his heart, and the reason I'm bringing this up in relationship to our new grandson is that his the Lord did work on his heart, and he decided he was led to... Um, be on the mountaintops and let the voice of the prophet and the apostle declare the word of the kingdom over every state. And so his first time out with me was the highest point in our home state of Florida, Mm -hmm. which happens to be in Paxton, Florida. And so the night before we were to go on his very first adventure with me, we stopped by Stevie and Megan's home, Mm -hmm. and we were telling them why we were coming through Tallahassee and that we couldn't stay overnight because we had to be there by sunrise. And uh, when she saw our picture the next day, she shared this with me last night, and she said, "Um, we have been considering the name Paxton and weren't completely sure we wanted it to be his first name. And when we saw your picture and pop from giving a a little short Facebook Live video Mm -hmm. from Paxton, we knew that was a confirming word. And I thought, how wonderful for his first adventure (laughs) to be in Paxton. And now he has, we have little baby Paxton Alexander in our family. So we're happy to to do that. And I just, I share that little personal story about uh, adventures in faith is that this journey for all of us and the, the walk in the kingdom is a great faith adventure. Yes, it is. And um, that is what led me and Steve together. That's how the Lord joined our paths. Mm-hmm. It's what motivates us uh, morning, noon, and night is this great faith adventure together in the kingdom of God. And so uh, it's a delight to be here. I've had a lovely time with your pastors, and uh, we were blessed that they attended our wedding and started out, um, you know, blessing us, setting us right, and setting the good example of how to live love in the kingdom. So I just want to thank you for welcoming me and uh, for them welcoming me into the family and into the house. Amen. Now, if some of you would uh, maybe pray about it when... uh, she leads the expedition in Michigan, your state. Oh, yes. You may feel that you want to join her. In the, now listen. I would love now, to. Now join. listen. If I can do this, <laughs> ju- if I can jump out of the box that I've been in, now, now you guys, you know me. You've known me over 30 years. If I can get out of the box that I've been in, I know some of you can do it as well. 
uh, when I went into the bank to tell them we did six high points um, in, six in six days. We did the high point in Florida, all 345 feet. Oh. Hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, then, and then, of course, from there to Alabama, and that was about 2,400 or so. Mm -hmm. yeah, and, and we hiked, and we hiked on that particular one. And so that was my first time with her. And I discovered quickly that hiking at heights, altitude, was a whole lot different than walking at sea level in Florida. I can walk for miles at sea level. We walk for miles and together. Fast. Yes, it's and fast. Yes, and fast. At sea level. But uh, <laughs> going up that, going up those hills, I was like Jack the Bear was making tracks. <laughs> but I won't go on too too far too fast. But uh, but new experience there. And then from there to Tennessee, it was there at Klingman's Dome. That was like 6,600. Do you hear something going on each time? It's getting higher It's and getting higher. higher and higher. And as, and as we go up, uh, I'm commanding my breath to get a little bit better each time <laughs> because, uh, you know, it's a little different. And then from there, we went to Georgia, and we hiked again at uh, Brass, Brass Town Ball. Brass Town Ball. Another ministry couple joined us yes. in Georgia. Friends of mine that I hadn't seen in years, yeah. and they heard from Facebook that we were doing this, and they decided that they wanted to join us. And uh, Pastor Sharon, who could barely move her legs, yeah. but yet she did, uh, once we drove up to a certain point, then she was able to walk up the high point and made it up to the top of the high point. Great, great victory. Yeah, there. great yeah. victory for yeah. her. And then, oh my God, the next day, the next day, <laughs> Mount Mitchell yes. in North, North Carolina, Carolina, the highest point east of the Mississippi River. And Michelle said, we need to get there at sunrise. And it so happened that day that I think it was about a 35 or 40 mile an hour wind on top of 6,700 some feet. And I'm up there, I've got her, what we used to call in North Carolina, toboggan, I don't know what you call them up here. But I had that thing, I mean, just slapped across my head. She's smiling like she normally doesn't give any encouraging words. And I'm behind her looking like this. I'm, you know, I'm shivering cold, <laughs> just waiting for this to be over so we can get in the car. <laughs> Yeah. Like, oh, we have to do a Facebook Live. Yeah, you yeah. have to encourage the people from the top of the mountain. Yeah, yeah, and we did. Yes. And then from there to, to South Carolina, to Sassafras Mountain, and we did a, uh, a hike, almost a six-mile hike in there. Yeah. And we got to a certain point at, at one of the pine trees, mm -hmm. and I saw uh, a batch of the bark missing about the size of my hand. And... And where it was located on the tree, it was looking me straight in the face. Now, you know, growing up in North Carolina, I've seen woodpeckers before, and I know what woodpeckers do. And that was no woodpecker. <laughs> and so I asked her, I said, uh, what do you think made that mark? And she didn't answer me because I, I guess, you know, she wanted to spare me from fear. We weren't to the top yet. We weren't to the top yet, because I would have turned around if she had given me a, an answer at that point. 
And later I figured, I said, hmm, that must be a bear. So I started looking around. You know, I'm walking. I'm looking around, and, and, you know, she's leading it because she's the leader of the expedition there. And when we got to the top, I said, thank you, Jesus. We, no did, not, we did not run into a bear Yeah, out it here. was fresh bear scratch. Yeah. yeah. But they won't bother us because we're on a mission from God. Hallelujah. Declare the kingdom of God from the high point of every state. Now make sure that you add your faith to that statement she just made. <laughs> Because we got some we got some other places, and the bears aren't so small like black bears. I mean, especially Alaska, they're they're really big bears up there, and uh, and even in the western states, we, you know, there's some bears well. Right. Yeah. Right. So please give that some prayer, even if you've never thought about it before. Um, when I started, when I got the word from the Lord that the first mountain he wanted me to do was Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania, Africa. And if you're not mountain familiar, Kilimanjaro is the tallest freestanding mountain peak in the world. And I didn't even own a pair of hiking boots. I like heels and hair and fingernails and smelling good. I don't even like a glisten, much less sweat. And I'm like, uh, I think I just tapped into somebody else's prayer vein here because that can't be for me, you know. So I went from that to God saying, this is what I want you to do. This is your ministry. You're an adventure chaplain. And then I, after my first one, I begged the Lord. I said, if you would let me lead lady leaders on things like I just experienced, it would be like the greatest gift to me ever. Just let me facilitate for them the relationship change I had with you, training and preparing and praying from the mountaintop. Just, if you'll just let me open the door for them to have that experience, it would be like my all-time favorite thing, except having every children, every child in the ministry. Now, that would be like number one, but number two would be to open the door for other lady leaders to do that. And he did, and he has since um, 2012. But yes, and so now... You know, it's we're open to male and female sons of God in the kingdom of God, declaring the kingdom from every high point between now and November 2020. So, yes, when we do uh, Michigan, I understand it's like kind of northwest of here, right? It's way up above the top, the lakes. It's way up in the top. It's actually closer to fly into Milwaukee, I think, than here because every state we go to now, I'm checking out how close am I to the high point. Okay, so sometime between now and 2020, November 2020, we'll be doing Michigan, and I would love to have as many of you in the team as possible. We have ground team, and they just, they provide transportation and prayer. We have um, hikers that will do one mile, hikers that will do the whole thing, you know, so everybody has a part in declaring the kingdom of God, and we'd love to have you with us. So just hook up with us on Facebook, or you can find me at greatfaithadventures.com. DrStephenEverett.org yeah. is, um, but on Facebook we're we're there every Tuesday night live, and then every mountaintop we do together, declaring the kingdom. We um, either live from Facebook or do a taped recording and, and post it. So hook your faith with us. The Lord wants to blanket this country with the declaration of the kingdom because our words are creative, and we plan to create the kingdom of God. Right? Amen. Amen. Thank you. I'll tell you one other story. Uh, 
No, you. Um, when I went to the bank just prior to the trip, uh, I told them that my wife is an adventure chaplain and she leads prayer expeditions uh, thus far with the ladies, uh, other ladies in ministry. Uh, and they go and they pray at these high points. They train for that and they pray. I said, uh, guess what? I'm going on this one with her. We're going, at that time, it was five high points. We hadn't added in Tennessee at that point. And when I told them that I was going hiking with her, they all just burst out and started laughing. <laughs> they said, you? They said, the only thing we've ever seen you as is an academic, and now you're talking about becoming a frontiersman? I said, no, not you. <laughs> and so I'm thinking, my God, even in the bank, they recognize I've been in a box. <laughs> <laughs> the best thing about the box is I have graduated from sleeping in my minivan on a mattress or sleeping in a hut out in the middle of nowhere into a, a nice, like, embassy suites or something at night. So there yeah. is nice upgrades. To yeah, the yeah, 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 <laughs> thanks. Sir. Yeah, I, I said I can handle it, but... Uh, but give give me give me a hotel at night, you know. <laughs> yeah. There's much I want to share with you in these two sessions that we have together, and um, where I'd like to begin is Acts 14 and looking at verse 22. And for some of you, you're well aware of of this verse, and for some of you. This will be something that I trust will strengthen you for the days that are before us. We know that we're living in an incredible season of time. If you're not aware of that, I want you to be aware that I believe that Pastor Chuck has made you, of course, aware that this is an incredible season. We know that uh, a number of things as far as within the context of the economy of God, where we are time-wise, a number of things are changing. If you just look at within uh, the last few months or so, and I was sharing this with Pastor last night, I said, when you think about a, a statesman, a kingdom statesman, like Dr. Billy Graham, who went home to be with the Lord, just shy of 100 years old, and how that he was a man of honor. He was a man of integrity. You heard nothing about any skeletons in his closet that eased out. Nothing like that. He stuck with his calling. Although we know that his calling primarily was an assignment within what we would call the outer court, and that is to bring people into the kingdom of God. Everybody has to get started. Everybody has to get started. And so you have those who have that assignment. And as long as they're faithful to their assignment, their reward will be just as great as anyone else's. And so we, we saw that with Dr. Graham. And I was very grateful for his life, but he did move on. Now, when something like that begins to happen, God really is making a statement on what was Good Friday, March 30th. Dick Iverson, who was pastor of Bible Temple when he pastored it, but is city church now in Portland, Oregon. Out of there came some of the great manuals that many of us studied back in the early 70s and through the 70s 
Uh, he had another scholar with him by the name of Kevin Connor, who went back to Australia, 91 years old. He's still with us. But Brother Iverson, he went on to be with the Lord. And so we see a ministry that spent the vast majority of his public ministry in what we would call the holy place and looking at restoration truth. They wrote books on these subjects, the Tabernacle of David, Tabernacle of Moses, uh, present-day truths, uh, just really some outstanding manuals came out of, at that time, Bible Temple. And now, the third one is the publisher who opened the door to me for writing, Don Norai. He just passed, April 17. And, of course, if you heard him speak or have read much of his writings, you know that his focus was on life beyond the veil. And so what we're talking about here is life from within the context of the holiest of all. Now, what I realize is that when you have three influential leaders to leave within a few months, God really is making a statement to us that there's a season change that is going on. And if we read, really, the heavens correctly, we realize this. Now, for some of us, you know, like the parable um, in Matthew chapter 20, I believe it is, the parable of the vineyard and the laborers that are assigned to the vineyard, some call the first hour, the third hour, I believe the sixth hour, and uh, then the ninth hour, and then the eleventh hour. Now, if I, if I add an hour and it just get Allow me some grace here. But, but here's the point, that workers were called at different hours. Now, what I realize about that is that there is no particular workforce that remains the dominant focus in the kingdom of God forever. There are shifts that do take place, shifts of labor. When you get to this 11th hour group, it's a group that at that point that had not necessarily been received. And the question to them is, why are you standing around idle and not working? And the reply was, because no man hired us. Now, Jesus made the statement that there are 12 hours in a day to labor. And if they come in at the 11th hour, then that tells us that based upon the saying of Jesus, there's an hour left to get the job accomplished. Now, it doesn't mean that the laborers in the previous hours failed. Because you can only labor and work together with the Lord based upon the revelation that he gives you and the grace that is given within your particular hour. So it is always unfair to judge one generation based upon the light that another generation has. Are you with me here? But what we do know 
is that because shifts are taking place, most of the time within the church, change doesn't happen without struggle. Birthing requires struggle. All the ladies who have given birth to children, you know what I'm talking about. Now, the men, we're just guessing. But I do remember when my two biological children were born that my wife, who had a hand about half the size of mine, almost broke mine. <laughs> so something was going If it wasn't a struggle, something was going on. <laughs> <laughs> that those those two nights. And so birthing requires and there is struggle connected to it. There was a point where the scripture made a reference that the children had come to the time of birthing, but they had no strength to bring forth. Now you know about the case of Daniel when he talks about the little horn. How that the little horn seeks to wear the saints out. Now, in my travels, I have seen this going on. And I've asked the Lord, how can I encourage the family? Because I don't see the family just simply as one particular group. For me, because I'm mobile, I move about, the family is what we would call an extended family. It's a large family. It's the whole family of God. I said, so how can I ex encourage the family that you have given me influence to? And so what I want to bring to you tonight, I trust will be an encouragement and also provide some perspective as we move through this season of time and enter more fully into what God desires to express. Um, for many of you younger ones, maybe you know some about the struggle and heard stories about the struggle that has allowed the kingdom of God to come to this point. It's very real. You see, coming out of classical Pentecost, I remember the struggle well. And I remember how that my father and the Lord, Apostle Lewis Sanders, had to keep his face set like flint as to what God wanted to birth at that time because it would have been easy to backtrack and return back to where we used to be because it was more comfortable. In fact, it was more convenient. And yet, he saw what was before us. It's like Jesus, you see. The reason that he was able to endure the cross, accept every bit of the shame that went with being a crucified person at that time, was because of what he saw. That would be the byproduct of what he was going through. And therefore, he was willing to walk through it.
although it looked like at that time that this was the most dishonorable experience as a human being you could go through. And I don't know if we've, we've ever studied enough on historically what happened with a crucifixion. But every last bit of your human dignity was removed in a crucifixion. It wasn't just this nice little crucifix that we see, you know. No, it, it was a mess. It was a dishonoring mess going on. And yet, when you study the words of Paul, he makes us well aware that this was a transaction between the Father and the Son. There was an agreement that was already set before the foundation of the world. The Son would come out of the eternal into the historical. And he wouldn't just simply be the eternal lamb, but he would become the historical lamb who would die, the lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. Now, we know all this. And sometimes it is very, very important to recognize our place in this. Certainly, we were crucified together with him. It simply means that we were identified with him in crucifixion. We were buried with him. And then we enact that burial in baptism. We were raised together with him in the newness of life. And we, and we, and we live that newness of life by yielding our members as instruments of righteousness now. Whereas in the past, we lived an unrighteous life. We have been reset, if you will. And when God speaks to what is man, he should be able to point at us as a corporate man now and say, that's your answer right there. What I'm, what I've birthed and what I'm producing inside of them, that's your answer of what is man. We identify with him. We know that we were raised together. That's the principle of resurrection. And now we're seated together with him in heavenly places. He's seated as a firstborn. Because anytime this concept of you're seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, that's the position of the firstborn. We know that as the firstborn, he is the legal heir to everything that the father has. That's what we know. And we have been made joint heirs together with him. Do you hear all this together? These things, what we have together with him simply because of him. Now we know that for us, that was a bequeathing of his grace. It wasn't because we were deserving. No, no. Now the, the, the way you see me today was not the way I was prior to coming into him. The way you've known me, no. No, my life was a mess. <laughs> you know, sometimes people ask, uh, what is your background? Well, what was anybody's background before they came into Christ? A mess. Whether it was a pretty mess or an ugly mess, it was a mess. <laughs> Are you with me here tonight? 
And so we know these things that we have together with him. Our citizenship, the Bible tells us, is in heaven. Right now, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, from whence we look. So we know that we have, in one sense, a dual citizenship. We're citizens primarily in heaven. We get to live it out on earth. Isn't that beautiful? Dual citizenship. We know that we're bi-dimensional beings. We are spirit, but we happen to be housed in a body on earth. And therefore, that makes us bi-dimensional. So, really, you actually can occupy both realms at the same time. Now, the reason for this is because we live in an open heavens. Come on. We don't have to wait for a portal to open up. We don't have to wait for a thin place to open up. Uh-uh. When the veil was rent from top to bottom, I don't see any place where somebody went and sewed it back up. It was rent once and for all for good. And it's up to us to live in an open heavens. Now what got us there? Come on, Hebrews chapter 10. Remember, there's a new and living way. What that simply means was that there was a newly slain way that inaugurated or opened up the holiest of all to us. And what Paul says is having confidence, therefore, to enter into. That word enter into is a powerful word. It's the word asadas. It simply means a road has been opened. Now enter into it. It's one of the seven nouns that describe the coming of the Lord. You can't take just one and fully describe the coming of the Lord. Hallelujah. But we've entered in. And it's been that way accessible to us for 2,000 years. We've had access to the Father for 2,000 years. And there's no reason that any of us should live fatherless. I mean, there's not a single reason any of us should live like an orphan because Jesus said in John 14, verse 18, I will not have you comfortless. That is, I will not have you orphaned. And how many times, think about it, brethren, that we allow the residue of who we used to be in Adam because Adam was an orphan. Yes, he was. He was an orphan. You wouldn't have all this stuff in the earth today that's contrary to the kingdom of God and dysfunctional in the human experience if Adam hadn't lived as an orphan and trying to produce and trying to create and trying to find God outside of God. If that isn't the description of an orphan, I don't know what else is. And there are times the residue of that will try to cling to any of us. You know, what I was thinking about, again, considering deeply, Mary and Michelle, and, and this is the way this thing tried to grab me. I said, Lord, I can believe you to take care of me. I don't know if I can believe you once again to take care of me and a wife. 
And I trust that you won't ever have to wrestle with that, not a day in your life. I was wrestling with it. And then a good friend of mine who's known me for 40 years, and I told him I was wrestling. He said, okay, let's talk about this. He said, I remember the night when you walked through the door there, and, I, and, and really, to preface that, I came in, and I was going to sit on the back seat. I wasn't backslidden or anything. I was just going to sit on the back seat, easing quietly. And as I come through the door, the prophets stopped me and went up one side of me and down the other for about an hour. I said, well, that's it for easing in the back door and sitting down on the back seat. But what they did, they spoke about what God had purposed for my life. He said, now, for 40 years, that brother reminded me of that. He said, we have watched God unfold in you. Just about every word those two prophets said. He said, now, do you think that he would allow a son of God who desires to please his father to go without bread and to have to start begging now? You see, he was a real brother. He was a real brother. And all I could do was just sit and just bow my head. You're right. I have watched the faithful hand of my father these 40 years. Out of this is an assignment that he's given us the opportunity to participate in now. I might as well go ahead and get with the business. And so the very next week, I went out to Branson, Missouri, and proposed. You see, I had to settle it. And I settled it. And I just said, Father, I trust you. You see, anytime we're entertaining the thought that we're going to experience lack, that's living beneath our sonship. Anytime. Because Jesus, remember what Jesus said? If you will first, Matthew 6, 33, first seek ye the kingdom of heaven and what? And his righteousness and what will happen? All these things. Now the things, you've got to read the list that precede that saying. And what it was talking about basically was being overly concerned about provision. He said, because that's what the Gentiles think about. They think about surviving. How are we going to make it from one week to the next, one month to the next, one year to the next? Is the pension going to be in place? You know, is the corporation going to be, you know, be solvent? Is the government going to remain solvent? Is the old age pension going to be in place when I get 66? Talk to me tonight. He said, that's the things that the Gentiles think about. Those are not things that sons think about. What sons think about is the kingdom and seeking him first. Hallelujah. Concerning the matters of the kingdom. Now, is that telling anyone to become lazy, to become, you know, thoughtless? No. It's just simply saying, that's not your priority because you have a father. 
Hallelujah. Now, when you're a 25-year-old and you're quoting David when he said, I've been young and now I'm old and I've never seen the righteous forsaken. Well, as a 25-year-old, all you're doing is just repeating something you read. But once you start to get older and you say, I've been young and now I'm older and I've never seen the righteous forsaken. And I've never seen his seed begging bread. Come on, that has a little bit more power, a little bit more grip to it then when you're able to say that. You know, like he's, God said to Abraham after the war in Genesis 15, he said, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Well, either he is or he isn't. And when he said, I'm your shield, that means I'm your protector. Either he is or he isn't. Now, the next time I'm on the trail, I'm going, to re- I'm going to remember that I'm going to, you know, I'm going to say, remember what you said in, in, in Novi, Michigan, that he is your shield. <laughs> Hallelujah. He said, and I'm your exceeding great reward. Look it up. It means salary. Check it out. Salary. I am your protection. And I am your provision. Now he's saying this to Abraham after one of the greatest battles that he had fought thus far in helping to defeat the four kings that the five armies, five other kings couldn't defeat. And rescuing Lot, who had gotten himself in trouble by being in the wrong place at the wrong time, connected to the wrong people. And what motivated Abraham to really move to action is nothing but love. He had absolutely no dog in the fight. He had no reason to enter battle other than Lot was his nephew and love provoked him to action to rescue his captured nephew. And when he came back, now remember, the king of Sodom offered him a deal. You remember the story and how that in offering him a deal, Abraham said, oh no. I'm not going to provide you the opportunity to say that you have made Abram rich. Now, you see, he can say that because, see, Genesis 13 comes before Genesis 14. And he had already been down in Egypt, remember that? And it already failed, if you will, the integrity test for a moment because he said that Sarah was not his wife. And the Lord, of course, made Pharaoh very aware she was his wife. And don't you touch her. No, I'll deal with you. And then he come to Abraham and ask him, why didn't you tell me this woman was your wife? He said, this is the deal. I'm going to pay you to leave. Now, maybe you didn't frame it that way, but that's exactly what he did. I'm going to pay you to leave. Take your wife, take your stuff, leave. And the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 13 that he came out of Egypt very rich. So even when God spoke to him in Genesis 15 at the beginning there, it wasn't because he was poverty riddled. He was already wealthy. But the Lord was talking about something higher, much higher, 
of great spiritual quality. And he says, I'm your provision. I'm your protection. And it was after that, he met Melchizedek in Genesis 14. And it was after that, that the son of promise was birthed. And then in Genesis 17, that's the story where his name is changed. Circumcision is added to his life, is to be in every male descendant. Really all you're looking at is the story of what is going to unfold in the new covenant. We're just looking at it in picture form there. But the point of it is, he could not bring forth the son of promise with an orphan condition. And it is equally true in the conversation that Jesus has with these men who are soon to be sent ones in John chapter 14. You're not going to be the next link of succession and you're carrying an orphan spirit. And I believe that is equally true today in the next link of what God is providing us the opportunity to bring forth in the kingdom of God on earth, we won't be able to do it with an orphan spirit. He dealt with it. He dealt with it effectively. This is the way he dealt with it. He said, I'm going to send you another comforter. So he sends, he says, yes, that's when he begins the conversation about the Holy Spirit. And he tells them exactly what he's going to do when he comes so you won't be confused and wondering if it's the real deal, the authentic thing. He said, this is what the comforter is going to do. And from chapter 14 right on through 16, there are bits and pieces where he talks about this comforter who is coming. Early January, Michelle and I, on one of our assignments, excuse me, not January, but February, the Lord spoke to me. He said, you're to teach tonight on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'm thinking, wait a minute. These folks know about sonship. They know about man-child. You know all those major themes we talk about? And the Lord said, teach on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So I did. And there were several men, once the invitation was given to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, children came up desiring to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You see, God knew exactly what was needed at that moment for that church to go forward. And sometimes we assume because, you know, we have the right teaching in place that everybody has had the experience. But it's not so. And whenever the Lord mashes our button to say, teach on this, then we've got to be sensitive enough, discerning enough, to know that Father has something to do within that service. Because he doesn't give us something to teach that he's not ready to manifest. Let me say that again. He doesn't give us something to teach that he's not ready to manifest with the teaching. 
Okay? Now, I've been leading into where I want to go with this tonight by simply saying a season change is on us. And we may be sensing some pressure. We may be sensing some pressure to conform to God. I'm just checking my spirit here for a minute. Yeah. Because that pressure can be there to keep us stationary rather than moving forward. You know, the one thing that I, that, that I, I, I really face, and it's almost been every time there's been a season change. In 1975, God spoke to me. We were a deliverance church. He said, deliverance as you know it is over. I didn't say deliverance was over. Deliverance as you know it is over. The primary vessel that God had used to launch that movement died April of that same year, 1975. In 1985, I was preaching out in southern Illinois in a place called Piron. The Lord spoke to me, sonship, as you know it, is about to take a shift. Fall of that year, Bill Britton passed. 1995, spoke to me again. I'm getting ready to inaugurate the third wave of Reformation. And I had never even considered that the whole tabernacle is a picture of how Reformation has unfolded. Starting with Luther, the outer court, at the brazen altar, message, the just shall live by faith. Music, hymns were birthed again in the church. Technology, the printing press had just preceded that. Because the slogan of the Reformation was Scripture only. If it's not according to the Scripture, we won't receive it. And I, and I began to see the pieces come together. Then the labor was restored. You had what we call the Anabaptists or the Rebaptizers. Said it is by immersion, burial. Not sprinkling ahead. And the previous move of God, the Lutherans, did not want to take the next step. We're talking within seven years, seven years, that what had been a dynamic birthing of something out of struggle, it was now just about dead and had become formalized. It was on its way. And without, you know, casting stones or anything, if you look into a Lutheran church today and think about the man that God used to launch that movement, we're talking something totally, totally 
Because it doesn't carry the life that it carried in the beginning. And then, of course, the church basically stayed at those two pieces of furniture for nearly 400 years. And it wasn't until the turn of the 20th century <laughs> that that period right there, just before really everything is changing in America. I mean, everything is changing. We, you have men who are saying, listen, we don't have to have the horse and buggy anymore. I believe we can make something that's motorized. Some of it happened right here. Come on, in your city. But it wasn't the only city that it was going on in. There were people in other countries had the same idea. You see, when it is a download, a Kairos moment from heaven, many began to catch the pulse of the Spirit and began to work within the framework of the idea. And so you had those in France, come on, Germany, you had many countries that were basically testing and working with the concept today we call the car. Well, you had the Wright brothers there in North Carolina, Kitty Hawk, they had another idea. They had tapped into something that Leonardo da Vinci had tapped into way back in the 1500s. I believe that we can fly. You see, transportation was changing because things were speeding up. And that's why we really needed the baptism of the Holy Spirit afresh at the turn of the 20th century to give proper foundation to everything that God wanted to do. One of the most important presidencies in the United States of America was right at that time, Theodore Roosevelt. Are you hearing me here? What was going on technologically? Well, you just had the telephone by Alexander Graham Bell. You had things like the tape recorder, things like the TV. All of this was being just kind of tinkered with and worked with. What was going on in music? Well, men began to sing spiritual songs. That is a song that was birthed by the Spirit right there in the service, unrehearsed. That's what was going on. And so we got the door open now, but what men began to do was colonize around the separate pieces of furniture within the holy place. So you got what, what was birthed as word churches, those that camped around the, the, the lampstand. Then you had the fellowship churches, those that camped around the table. Then you had later on, uh, as time moved, you had the, the restoration, the teaching of the restoration of the tabernacle of David. And now we've got here people who are camping around the altar of incense. And thus the three pieces of furniture had three distinct expressions. Are you hearing me here tonight? You see, what, what was happening, it was necessary for reformation or a resetting, if you will, for each of these pieces of furniture. But you equally had men that were hearing even deeper than that, beginning in the, 19, the late 1940s, post-World War II. See, out of a great struggle, something was birthed. Great struggle. It was a world struggle. And if we could read the heavens correctly, you see, you don't read the newspaper, you don't listen to the TV to discern what God is doing. You read the heavens. You read the heavens. 
And if we would have read the heavens correctly, what we would have realized in what was later called latter rain was nothing more than God adding one more piece to this whole process of restoration and reformation. And what he was preparing us for was to experience from a very practical level what was the rent veil and what was available as you walk through that rent veil. That's what he was getting us ready for back in the late 40s, late 50s. I wasn't even born then. And that revelation was already in the earth. I just happened to be a late bloomer that caught it. <laughs> Hallelujah. I'm glad that God made it available to catch. And so you move through the charismatic movement where there was the singing of songs. And then there were aspects of each of those pieces of furniture that was in, engaged in the charismatic movement. Why was this important to move through that? You see, God didn't intend for it to become charismaniacs. That wasn't what he intended. What he intended to do was cross all denominations and say, I can baptize people in the Holy Spirit regardless to what the tenets of the denomination is. It doesn't matter what they say is the doctrine. I can give people experience. You see, a person with a real, genuine experience from God is not at the mercy of five or ten men with an argument. And they're usually the men that control the denominations. Hallelujah. So as we move through, then you had the birthing of what was called the modern faith movement. And well, along with that was the message of the restoration of the, the prophetic ministry. Then when you move into the 90s, now we have men speaking about being apostles. And the restoration now that the hand is fully formed. Hallelujah. Because you see in the past with the first phase of Reformation, the pastoral ministry, was the real focus again. How did it come forth? Out of struggle. Because prior to that, the assignment was priests, men only. And anytime you're moving from what is the norm into what is the truth, there's great struggle. Then when you move into the next phase, Pentecostals. It's the evangelists, the charismatics, the teachers. Come on, you got three fingers now. Three fingers. Now, if you look at these three fingers, suppose that was only your hand. You'd be considered a handicap. And one of the things that we know that Jesus did was restored the withered hand and made it as whole as he did the other. We know that. So at one time, the hand was whole. We see that. Come on. In the early phase of the church, we see that. But it became withered because of men's traditions. 
So now the last part of the 20th century was to get the other two fingers in place. It could not happen without great struggle and resistance. I would hear people say, well, I get my apostles and prophets from the Bible. And I want to say, why don't you get your teachers, your evangelists, and your pastors from the Bible? I said, no, the greatest expression of anything is when the word is made flesh and dwells among us. So we receive the fact that God was restoring genuine prophets to the body because the body could not fully mature without genuine prophets in their place. Hallelujah. Downloading once again the precipitous word of the Lord, saying this is the word precipitous for this season. This is how we know that we're in step with God, is that word is right there, just like Zechariah. As they prophesied during the time of the restoration, the prophets were right there speaking as God restored. Hallelujah. When Nehemiah, remember when he was building, he had the trumpeter, the prophet, right there as he built to say, yes, you're on target. You're in sync. You're right in step with God. You're not out of season. Was there great struggle? Yes. You had Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabians, the Ammonites, all right there to resist what God was doing. But nevertheless, hallelujah, they had a trial in one hand and a sword in the other. And so they built together until they restored the wall in place. And so as God restored, he had one more piece, one more link to put in there. And that would produce the greatest struggle. Because your thumb, everybody grab, just grab your thumb for a moment. Do you realize that your thumb is the only finger that can touch every other finger? easily. You could take your pointer, come on, you could take your prophet, you know, you start, you, got, you know, you really, you really got to work it a bit to touch every other finger. But he can touch the thumb easily. That's why the order of God was always as far as a tandem, apostles and prophets together. Usually when you get a bunch of apostles together, it's tough for a bunch of type D's <laughs> to hook up together and remain humble. <laughs> and so therefore God will join basically apostles and prophets. But when you got the thumb in place, now you have that that gives you the ability to grip 
the whole counsel of God. The full volume, if you will, of the book. And until it is in place, we will have points that are just simply missing. And once again, with each one of these, it has been great struggle. Now, we are talking about the Lord bringing all the streams together so that there is a river, not rivers, a river, and the streams together make glad the city, but it's only about producing one river. Now, you know, we talked a lot about from the Old Testament, there was only one that could go into the holiest of all one time a year, seventh month. Come on, Bible students. Tenth day. It's called the Day of Atonement. And that was the high priest. You know what I'm going to tell you? There's still only one. There's still only one. Because operating in there is only one piece of furniture. And that is the ark and the mercy seat on top of the ark. Hallelujah. It is a people that is one in Christ that can only live in there. You, you, can't, you can't come on and go in there as, well, we're just a candlestick people. We're just, well, we're, we're table people. We're fellowship people. Well, well we're, we're just worship people. And, that, and that's, you know, uh-uh. No, 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 no. Come on, they've got to come together. And that's why we sense that in this hour that God is choosing to break down these barriers that we've erected. He didn't do it. We did it. Because it is only one new man in Christ that is acceptable. And this that God is producing in the earth today. And if we fight this thing, we're subject to join the cloud of witnesses. Because it is contrary to the season we live in. Now, I'm not saying this, you know, to put fear in anybody's heart. I'm just telling you. You know, we've heard things like the sons of Issachar. They had understanding of the times, and they knew what Israel ought to do. Remember that? That's the kind of people we need in the earth today. Is that same Issachar spirit that has understanding of the times and know what we are supposed to do. Now, what did they know in their day? That God had left the previous season and the new one was already inaugurated. Let me say it this way. He had left Saul and he had come to David. In other words, we had left that that was anointed 
with a man-made instrument. And we've come to that that has been anointed with a ram's horn full of oil. In other words, it was sacrifice, birth, struggle that produced this. And that's why you had long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. Struggle. But this is what the Bible tells us. Saul waxed weaker and weaker. And David grew stronger and stronger. Hallelujah. Because that was what God was doing at that appointed season. And there was nothing in the old order that could stop it, prevent it. Nothing could, nothing could, man, nothing could anticipate that this shift had gone on. But God in really, in one sense, the privacy of what was an invitation to come to a feast selected the next thing that he was doing while the previous thing looked totally functional. When God had discarded Saul, oh God, discarded Saul, the kingdom had been rent away from him. He looked just as kingly the next day as he did the day when the kingdom was rent from him. And Israel had no idea what had really happened other than there was a prophet by the name of Samuel who knew. It's just like the movement that has been going on now. Come on, the traditions have no idea. But you need sons of Issachar who have understanding of the time. And we know. And again, I submit to you, it doesn't happen without great struggle. Now give me just a few more minutes. Give me just a few more minutes. I promise you I won't preach all night because I want you back tomorrow. What does Acts 14 and 22 say? Come on, read it with me. Read it with me. Say, confirming the soul's other disciples, and exhorting them, that's what I'm doing tonight, is exhorting, to continue in the faith, to continue in the faith, and that we through, uh-huh, much tribulation, Enter into the kingdom of God. Now look at this. You're born into the kingdom. You seek the kingdom. And yet here is a dynamic concerning the kingdom that cannot unfold without struggle. Now, what are we dealing here with? Because I think we've got to go at the heart and center of this particular issue. Are they people who are already saved? Because they're called disciples. So we're not talking about whether, you know, they're trying to get born again. 
Whether they're trying to get into the kingdom, one foot in, one foot out, that's not the issue. Are they already within the context of a family? The answer is yes. Because God sets the solitary, the lonely in families, but the rebellious, he leaves in a dry land, a desert, if you will. So we know that they're believers. We know that they're disciples. And in knowing that they're disciples, we know that discipline is working in their lives. We know that they are pursuing the Lord. They're not just sitting around, lazy, indifferent, naive, saying whatever will happen, will happen. There's some good stuff going on here. And because of that, the apostles and prophets are making regular tours to strengthen them. They're in the faith. Now being that these things are in place, what then is this business about through much tribulation you enter the kingdom? What is that part all about? And I think we have to go to right at what is at the heart of the problem. And that is the soul. Now I just stated all those things that the issue is not in their spirit. They have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness, talk to me, into the kingdom of his beloved son. So we know that that transition has taken place from the world into the kingdom. It's not a spirit problem. The real issue behind the tribulation is what is going on in the soul and whether there is resistance or full capitulation of the soul to the authority of Jesus Christ. That's really the struggle. That's really the struggle that every last one of us encounter from day to day. Whether I'm going to bring my mind subject to his, my will subject to his, my desires subject to his. And I promise you the soul doesn't want to give up. It wants to struggle to stay alive. It resists and rebuffs words like crucifixion. But we know, based upon what Jesus taught, you take up your cross daily. Why do you take up a cross daily? Because there's something in your soul that must be decommissioned and come into full compliance with the King. Hallelujah. Every day that I lived this, I said, oh, God, when is it going to be over? Anybody else felt that way? Oh, God, when is it going to be over? And about the only answer that can bring any kind of anesthesia to your soul 
is that it's not over until it's over. You know, and I want to ask the question sometimes because you look up this word tribulation. That's a strong word. Thalipsis. And it simply means deep affliction. Isn't that really encouraging? <laughs> deep affliction. I'm saying, Father, the soul that we brought into the kingdom was in that much trouble. Now you see, at that point, he said, listen, you got to think about what you're saying. Because you really did die. You just haven't fully learned how to live. He said, every bit of this is teaching you how to live. Do you think it just jumped in, Paul? We know that we have the mind of Christ. Come on, do you think that just jumped in him? Now you see, what we, what we failed sometimes to remember, he had three years in the Arabian desert. What do you think was going on there? His soul was getting decommissioned. Because this was a man who was going to touch nations. And he could not touch nations as Saul of Tarsus. He had to come to the end of that man. And I know judicially in Christ we died in him. Experientially, we're getting to live it every day. Huh? Yeah. That's it, Brother Danny. You get to die daily. Now, either you, you, you choose to cooperate with God, or you just really drag you into it. I mean, we feel like this little, little kid, I'll tell you a little story, lighten this up for a moment. He was going out to receive correction as he had misbehaved in service. His daddy threw him over his shoulder like a sack of potatoes. And when he got there to the back door, he yelled back, Pray for me, saints! Pray for me! <laughs> <laughs> That's about how we feel most of the time, isn't it? You know, God our Father has threw us across his shoulder. Pray for me, saints! Pray for me! This is a secret, really, of extending the kingdom and actually learning dominion. Because you learn dominion through adversity. And what I've come to realize is that adversity is never disadvantageous to a son of God if we will choose to give thanks rather than complain. That's when adversity becomes our advantage.
Listen to what Peter said. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the 